Hello, and welcome to The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas in Washington. It's May 2023, and in about three weeks, the United States could plunge the world into economic chaos. Or maybe not. If you're like me, you're following the insanity here in Washington with increasing anxiety. Once again, the debt ceiling threatens to explode the economy in a self-created Armageddon. The debt ceiling has its roots in World War I. At that time, Congress looked for ways to make the spending of money easier to feed the war machine. Over 100 years later, it is a weapon of mass suicide wielded by partisans to extract concessions from the president and his party. A quick flashback. During the Trump administration, the debt ceiling was raised by Congress without any drama. Even as Donald Trump added trillions to the national debt, Republicans and Democrats approved this bizarro permission for the United States Treasury to pay its debts. Fast forward to the present, and once again, the debt ceiling is being deployed to eviscerate federal spending outside of the regular order of Congress. How to make sense of this madness? With me today is Maya Mekinis, president of the Committee for a Responsible Budget. She's one of Washington's most passionate and effective bipartisan advocates for a balanced budget. And now she's calling on Congress to raise the debt ceiling without delay. And a bit later, the next installment of our special interview series, X-Ray Vision, an exploration of the real person behind the political title. Nellie Gorbea is the first Hispanic person to hold statewide office in New England. As Secretary of State of Rhode Island, she navigated the increasingly choppy waters of American elections. But first, do you have a political question yearning for an answer? <laughs> Write me and I'll respond on a future episode. Go to thexray.org to send me your question. And now, my conversation with Maya McInnes. Maya McInnes, welcome to The X-Ray. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Uh, the debt ceiling obviously is now consuming the conversation here in D.C. Let's start with the worst case scenario. If Janet Yellen's prediction comes true that we essentially run out of authority June 1st and there's a default, what would happen? Well, I should say, I think it's actually quite likely that it'll be a little bit later than June 1st, but the question still brings a kind of shivers down my spine just to think about it, because I think this is the first time that we've been through this exercise where I do think a default is possible. I don't think it's likely. Um, I really don't think it's going to happen, but I do think it's possible. And the answer to that question is, we don't know exactly what would happen. Um, markets understand that it's a risk already, but they haven't had a huge response yet. But the real issue will be once people understand that either it is about to happen or it is happening, that we are not making good on the interest payments that we own, markets will have a huge response. And that will be everything from interest rates jumping up. And when you have as much debt as we do and or you are in the midst of the Fed trying to fight inflation, but hoping to do so without pushing us into a recession, and you have bank contagion going on, all of those things, the changes in interest rates, the loss in confidence, and the change that would likely happen in almost all financial markets uh, is likely to be quite huge, quite significant, and quite lasting. So it's a disaster. It's, it's not good. I can't tell you exactly what way it's not good, because we've never been there. It's terrible. And What's terrible is the fact that we seem 
poised to that there is a actual chance we might find out. There's no reason for a country that is is able to pay its bills to have the self-imposed crisis of actually defaulting. And and that's a point I think that's important to make, right? This is an artificial crisis. It's it's not part of the process. It's outside of the process. It's not what can happen um, normally. It's it's a choice that someone's making or a group of people are making. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean the situation is that we have we have a really bad budget process. We have a budget process where we actually don't budget. We don't pass budgets. And as a result, we don't have any place in our process where we discuss what our national priorities are, how we should allocate our resources, and how we should pay for things. And so because the debt ceiling, which has been around for decades and decades, is the only thing we have that actually forces the discussion, it gets used in a way that is actually very important. And I'll talk a little bit more about the history of the debt ceiling and how it has been used many, many times to do this before. But the problem is, if we were to default, that that the, the hammer part of the debt ceiling is so unimaginably bad and it will be such self-imposed pain. I have to imagine any country that's actually had to default because they weren't able to pay our bills is looking at the U.S. right now, scratching their head saying, seriously, you're, you're going to do this possibly by choice instead of when you don't have to, because it leaves them picking up the pieces for many, many years. But the problem is, We don't have a process in our budget, the way we do budgeting, that makes us stop and say, hey, how is the fiscal health of the country? And I'll just tell you, it's really bad. And if so, let's pause and figure out how we're going to fix it. And so it gets forced in a very not constructive way. Again, we used to lift the debt ceiling many, many times and also put in place a package of savings. The difference between this time and last time. It's not that people are saying, hey, we need to have a package of savings. That's actually quite common. It's that the people who are saying that, some of them are also saying, and we will default otherwise. That's not the rhetoric that that can be constructive around this. And you talked a little bit about confidence. The whole global financial system is built upon the U.S. dollar and U.S. treasuries. And the the confidence is that the U.S. is the most powerful country economically, militarily. It has never defaulted on a single dollar's worth of debt. And now we're saying to the world, hey, we're thinking about becoming Argentina. Right. I mean, we're we're super rich. We can finance any deficit, at least I know you have a different point of view on this, but in the short term anyway. Yeah. Uh, But we're going to decide to make a political statement. We're going to destroy the world economy because we want to cut down domestic spending. I mean, that's basically what we're saying to the world, right? Well, I think what we're saying is that, um, yeah, that not out of need, not because we can't pay our bills, but because we are choosing not to pay our bills we are going to create a crisis that would be both domestic and global in nature. <laughs> it just sounds so crazy. And I think you were being a little generous. You said we don't have a budget process, but which I'm sure it's true. But it's actually deeper than that, right? We have such weakness in political leadership that people can't differentiate between what is a process, we need to lower the deficit or, or at least debate it, and what is essentially using a nuclear option of saying, if we don't debate this, we're going to blow up the world economy. I mean, it, it, that's a leadership crisis, don't you think, at some fundamental level? Um, not exactly. I don't think that was my point. Okay. My point is that if we had a budget process that we stuck to, these issues would already be being resolved. I mean, for instance, we should have a process where one, you have to introduce a budget. Neither budget committee has put forth a budget yet. 
and it was due, the entire congressional budget was due in the middle of April. Two, we should have constraints within the budget. So right now you're able to borrow as much as you want and there's no constraint. The debt ceiling is the only constraint. Most countries also do, they don't have debt ceilings, but they have other ways to control their borrowing. We should look at a more sensible way to control our borrowing. Um, but three, I don't know that I think it's a political leadership problem. I'm really wrestling with politics in a much broader sense these days, because what I think is that uh, political leaders focusing on the good of their party instead of the good of the country is really at the root of why we're in such trouble already. And part of what we have right now is we have two parties that have realized it's really fun to do a lot of things, spending programs and tax cuts without paying for them. And so I think the polarization in this country where the party, both parties justify any action saying, well, it's really important we have a majority, so we're going to do this, we'll do what's ever popular, and then we'll fix things later, has led a growing situation where we very rarely pay for the things we do. And at a moment like this, when our debt is at near record levels, when we are about to be spending more on interest payments than we do on defense or children, when we're going to be spending $10 trillion, who knows what a trillion is, but it's a lot. $10 trillion on interest payments over the next decade. Um, there's clearly a fiscally unhealthy situation. We have our debt that's growing faster than the overall economy. But you have two parties that have a political incentive that says, let's do something easy. We don't want to pay for our new spending. We don't want to pay for our tax cuts because the political fight is really more important than doing policy that represents good long-term stewardship for the economy. That's what I worry about. Right. I guess what I mean by a political problem is during the Trump administration, Democrats went along, correct, uh, in approving the debt ceiling uh, raise? Well, it's a little more complicated. During the Trump administration, the debt ceiling was increased three times. And what we did and what Democrats wanted to do was attach policies to the debt ceiling increase. It's just that they didn't make the debt better. They made the debt worse. So under those three increases, they attached borrowing bills where they increased spending and didn't pay for it. And so all told, there was over $2 trillion in new borrowing, part of those debt ceiling increases. So that's kind of the worst of all approaches. Like the best in my mind is lift the debt ceiling, but also put in place a sensible package of, of savings policies if that's what you need. Number two, do a clean debt ceiling. The worst is do a debt ceiling and make your borrowing worse because it's must pass legislation. In the past, many, many times, we've included um, mechanisms that had fiscal commissions, spending caps, pay-as-you-go rules, actual policies that saved money. And we used to do that, again, without the threat of default, and it worked very well. But what we can't do is what we did under the Trump administration, where both parties put in place measures that made the debt even worse. So let's talk a little bit about that, right? Because it seems like they're mirror images of each other. Uh, Democrats, as you point out, believe that they can continue to grow the budget and for what they think are very important priorities. And Republicans think that they can cut taxes regardless of the impact because that's good for the overall economy based on their premise. Obviously, neither of these positions is accurate, and there's some truth in the middle, right? You, you have to have a balance. Last time we balanced a budget, which was for, you know, a, a five minutes <laughs> in 99 and early 2000, what had happened was expenditures were controlled to a certain extent and taxes were increased to a certain extent to create that balance. Not a magical thing. People do this in their lives almost every day, right? So what's missing here? What's broken? Well, what I really think is broken is the level of partisanship and the 
commitment to party over country. I, I mean, I'm a political independent. I've never really understood the purpose of parties other than creating the leaders of our country into two teams and telling them to kill each other while getting their jobs done. It doesn't seem to work out very well. But listen, I think it is totally legitimate for somebody to be a fan of smaller government or bigger government. And I think that's a kind of diversity of preference that is absolutely, there's no right or wrong there. Some people want more government, some people want less. The reality where I think that, that I agree with what you're saying is that we will not be able to fix our broken fiscal situation because we are in really bad shape. You know, I just, the numbers tell a very bleak story. And the reason to worry about is that high levels of debt like this harm your economic growth. They lower your standard living. They leave you unprepared to deal with emergencies. But even more now, they're starting, it's starting to become a problem with our national security and it's leaving us vulnerable on a global stage. In order to fix the fiscal situation that we have, there is no way to do it without both raising taxes and cutting spending. And I think the parties, both parties now are busy promising what they won't do. Republicans won't raise taxes. Democrats won't raise taxes unless you're making over $400,000. Used to be that Republicans were more uh, willing to talk about the need to fix Social Security and Medicare, both of which are going to become insolvent within just a little over a decade. Now both parties are promising not to touch these programs, which actually leaves the people who depend on them really vulnerable. So the political promises of what not to do are growing and growing. And easy for me to say, because I don't have to win political office, but here's the truth. We have to raise taxes. We have to raise them for more than just people making over $400,000. We have to reduce spending. And a big portion of that is going to need to be focusing on Social Security and Medicare. So those programs are able to pay the promises that they have made, which right now they're not able to. So the story the politicians are telling us is just not accurate. And everything will have to be on the table. So this is a, a pretty bleak picture you're painting. And obviously I, I, I agree with it. I mean, it's 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 nonsensical. You know, we're going to print money forever. We're never going to raise tax. I mean, it's just kind of a loopy, uh, weird thinking that's not anchored in reality. Give us a little bit of hope or not. Hmm. Uh, hmm. <laughs> are there political leaders, you can name them or not name them, that you think get this and actually have the ability and the will to be in leadership or to actually lead on this particular subject? Or are we just basically kind of slouching towards the cliff and eventually we just fall over? Argentina-wise. I can, yeah, no, I can give you some hope on two things, both fiscal and our overall state of our country, but I'm not in a hopeful place, so I won't be able to end there. But on the immediate, um, on the debt ceiling, there's a deal to be had. We can figure this out. We can do this without even getting close to default. We need to have some savings. It should be in the discretionary area, but really we need a fiscal commission that's going to look at these big items, the drivers of the debt of healthcare, retirement, interest payments, and taxes. And we need to reform the debt ceiling. We can figure out a way to do that where Republicans can say we got the savings we wanted and Democrats can say we separated these and didn't negotiate. That works. Like That's doable. If they want a deal, it's there to be had. Number two, they're incredible politicians from both parties. This is not about bad people these days. There are some. There are some who I would say are really not doing good for the country. But for the most part, you're, you're such you're such a, a diplomatic person. There's some pretty terrible people in Congress on both sides, right? I mean, ultimately, I don't find. You know what? I, I don't find focusing on. I think everybody is doing what they think is best. There are some people I strongly disagree with. I don't think people show up at work and say, I want to do bad. I want to do bad things. We live in a dangerous ecosystem right now where there is disinformation and it's getting worse. People are hearing things and completely different stories that are told to them. And people are doing what they think is right. But we no longer are having a shared sense of 
values or aspirations or experiences in a way that is driving us deeply apart. But I do think the vast majority of politicians who I work with are good and trying to do what they believe in and that we have a system that make that is making it worse. And we were talking about political leadership. I think political leaders aren't helpful. I do not think that they are able to look at the good of the country. They look at the good of the party. And I think they've become more powerful and that that's damaging. So, yes, I think there are a lot of people who are actually willing to do hard things and the right things and compromise and work together. And I do a lot of bipartisan convening and behind closed doors, I find a lot of hope. That said, where we are as a country, I think the level of polarization, which is being exacerbated by our own politics, but also outside forces, is getting dangerous. And I think that our country is easily think we are riled up. We are able to fall for things that are not true. Um, And it's going to be even more difficult with changes in technology and AI to start to be able to discern really truth from lies. And some of them are going to be inadvertent and some of them are going to be things that come at us from outside forces. And we are not strong enough and we are not united enough right now to deal with them. So what really scares me is that it's not the debt ceiling because shame on us if we can't figure this out. It's that the forces that are driving us apart already are going to continue to get worse. And that means that we're not dealing with the dangers around the world with the fact that people are purposely filling our our ecosystems with disinformation and trying to drive us apart and that the pot is getting stirred in a way that is continuing to cause problems. So that is where my deepest worries are, that these deep fundamental political, economic, cultural, and technological divides are continuing to get worse and keeping us from functioning the way that's best for the country. So social media being a major mechanism to create that disinformation, right? Yeah, absolutely. Technology and and the frictionlessness of the spread of things is certainly allowing the disinformation to be a huge problem. But we also have political institutions that are driving us apart. We have economic loss of faith in the way that our economic system is working and growing income inequality and issues that are making people not trust our systems and, and feel committed and engaged. And we have deep, listen, I think political diversity is awesome. I think people having different opinions about what's right or wrong or good or bad makes sense, but we need a process to reconcile those differences and be willing to compromise. And it's the being so dug in and the absolute belief that somebody's own opinions are the only right ones that I think are making it very difficult to resolve these tensions. All right. And then just coming to a close in our conversation, what are you betting on? You think it's, it gets resolved without a major explosion or are we really facing a market meltdown before these people get together? On the debt ceiling? Yeah, on the debt ceiling. I think it gets resolved without a major implosion. I don't think we will default. I wish I could say that. As con- I've never, ever thought there was a chance. This time, I think there is a chance. That really concerns me, but I don't think we're going to default. I think we're going to be able to pull this off. That's me knocking on wood. Exactly. <laughs> on that on that tiny little sliver of optimism, we're going to uh, end our conversation. Maya, thank you so much for taking the time yeah. to come on the X-Ray today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. And now, something completely different. Our special interview, The X-Ray Vision, looking to discover the real person behind the political title. Breaking Barriers is just another day at the office for Nellie Gorbea. She's the first Hispanic to hold statewide office in New England. As Secretary of State of Rhode Island, she was known for her vision and competence. But who is the real person behind the title? Here's the X-Ray Vision with Nellie Gorbea. Nellie Gorbea, welcome to the X-Ray Vision. 
Hi, Fernando. Great to be here with you. Great to be here with you, too. It's been a long time. I'm glad we could reconnect today. Yes. All right. Let me start out with a, sort of a big vision question. Uh, if you could tell something to the founders, what would it be? You need to include women and you need to include the diversity that really is the asset of this country. Okay. And it's something that I think about a lot as I think about structures that need to be improved and changed. You know, our democracy, which was founded by white landholding men, who, slaveholders, in, slaveholders, yeah. clearly were limited in their scope of who needed to be included. And American democracy has evolved, has grown, has become more inclusive, although it's had its fits and starts and is currently in one of those moments where we're really wondering whether or not we should have the kind of inclusivity that is the promise of, of this democracy. But interestingly enough, what I found as a former Secretary of State was that while universal suffrage has improved, it's not perfect yet, it is really the structures of government that haven't kept up with the times. So elections administration, or even how we structure when a legislature meets, curtails who's actually able to participate fully and robs us as an American democracy of the real talent that is present in our society. Do we have too many congresspeople or too few senators? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I had heard uh, Michael Steele's uh, podcast before this, and, and I agree with him. It's not about the numbers. Yeah. I think the numbers are fine. It's really about who sits in those seats. And, and that's the case for a lot of our structures, right? Um, and, and I'm worried about American democracy because who is able to attain those federal seats is more and more limited to individuals of incredible wealth uh, and resources and access to resources that regular folks just don't have access to. And that's not to say that, that I need to walk in your shoes in order to represent you, but we definitely need the diversity there. What would be your major at the Electoral College? What would be my major? <laughs> it would definitely be public policy, <laughs> which has been my major all my life. Uh, that's pretty funny. No, I actually, I would say, I think the Electoral College has lived its usefulness and we need to get rid of it. So that's, that's where I stand on that one. Okay. What was your favorite presidential election? You know, in many ways, every single one of them, I just, I get, I'm one of those people who gets jazzed up as I'm waiting in line to go vote. Same. Uh, but I have particular memories of, you know, like the Clinton election. And I think that to me was sort of a turning point in terms of really feeling, maybe because I grew up during the Reagan years, I mean, I'm 55, um, and finally feeling like, oh, this is a government that's really going to represent the way I think our country should be. Uh, and so that I think, I think of that one as, not, not necessarily my favorite, but just that moment that I remember when I went to go vote. Which historical figure do you most identify with? So I really love Joshua Chamberlain, who is a former governor of Maine and who fought in Gettysburg. And if you see the movie Killer Angels or Gettysburg and Killer Angels is the book, it speaks to him. And I think what grabbed me about him is this must have been a incredibly talented human being because he was able to not only serve in the military, but also serve his state. And what I really identified with about him was he walked with his, with his men. 
he wouldn't ride his horse at times mm. into, in battle. So, so he could feel the exhaustion that the troops were feeling. And, and so I think that as a leader, you have to get off your horse and walk with people and really feel where they are in order to be effective. Okay. Uh, what is the quality you most like in a politician? Authenticity. Uh, and it's funny because it's something that at times I've been told I have, and I've gotten to realize it's very rare um, in, in elected officials. I, I am who I am, and I don't know how to be anybody else, but you've got to be true to yourself. This is, in some ways, elected life is a little bit like a hall of mirrors. And so if you're not grounded in who you are, again, you can't lead others. You can't find them where they are if you're not sure of, of, of who you are. So just on an aside, the hardest question in this whole uh, questionnaire is what would be your major at the Electoral College? Because it's obviously a, a nonsense question, but it's that's the whole point, right? <laughs> and you'd be surprised how many people get stuck and won't answer for fear of saying the wrong thing. And at that <laughs> point, what do you have? You have someone who's not being even remotely authentic. Um, so anyway, it's, it's kind of a funny process. Yeah. Um, who is your hero? I don't have a specific hero. I have a lot of people who I admire. If a hero is somebody who you model yourself by, I would say it is my parents. They shaped me in, in many, many ways. I'm also very much grounded in my faith. I grew up Roman Catholic and it is a religion, like all religions has its own set of failings. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I very much ascribe to this idea of, of, of peace and social justice. And that's part of the reason I think I do what I do. But I don't look for a specific hero. I look for those people who can help coach me and, and push me out of my comfort zone when I need to. Okay. What would you rather have as a superpower, flight or invisibility? Oh, yeah, I, I saw that. I thought that was an interesting one. Um, I want to say actually transparency because I crave hearing from people what they actually think. Uh, even when it may not agree with me, even when it might hurt my feelings. When we get into those echo chambers where everybody tells you what they think you want to hear, which is very easy to have happen when you're in an in, in elected official position or any kind of position of leadership, I start getting very nervous that I'm missing out on what else is out there. And so to me, that transparency of being able to, to hear what people actually think um, is, is good. But, but, but again, I, and, and referring people to your previous podcast with Michael Steele, mm -hmm. I agree that you, you would want to be transparent about the fact that you're, you're at times invisible. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, which living person do you most despise? There are people that I am very, very concerned in terms of, of, of how they're manipulating others. And that could be, you know, Putin in Russia, but it can also be Trump here and others that are following his vein. I mean, I think it's very, very worrisome. I'm not going to say that I despise them because that involves hate and a sort of energy that I just don't want to give them or, you know, but I think we're in very dangerous times when you have these manipulative, well-resourced people that are, are, are really putting our, our whole world in danger. And I would say that just as troubling is the silence of people who are enabling them. 
And so, you know, that goes hand in hand. And final question, Nelly, scotch or bourbon? Bourbon. All right. Although preferably, honestly, rum. Rum. Mm, yes. Because I'm originally from Puerto Rico. And so, yes. you know, and now I'll go out there and say that Puerto Rico rum is world renowned. And so if I have a choice of that kind of alcohol, I'm going to go for my, for my Ron del Barrilito Tres Estrellas. Mm, muy bueno. Okay. Very nice. Nelly Gorbea, thank you so much for joining the X-Ray Vision. Thank you so much, Fernando. Take care. Thank you. You too. Weaponizing the debt ceiling is one of the worst ideas ever. It creates mass uncertainty in the economy. It dynamites confidence. It makes the United States seem, well, a little crazy in the eyes of the world. And let's remember, the U.S. dollar and treasury bills power the global system, which is a huge benefit to all Americans. I want to thank Maya for her insights today and Nelly for her grace and humor. And I want to thank the production team, Nicole Legacy, Sydney Richards, and Renette Pineda. And I want to thank you for joining me on this episode of The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas. For more information on this podcast, check out thexray.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. The X-Ray with Fernando Espuelas is an editorially independent production of Issue One.